0: Welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Leah Heigl, and I'm here with my co-host, Aidan Muir. Um, so today we're going to do a QA and a style episode. Um, so we've asked some questions on our Instagram, and we've chosen a few that we thought were pretty interesting, and we're just going to go through them in this episode. So first question is, easy ways to increase calories in meals for endurance athletes?
1: So there's quite a few ways. The first one I'm going to touch on is eating frequently throughout the day. I'll tell a story that's always made this like resonate with me. That's always like, I always think back to this. So basically I was working with a client who had bariatric surgery. So they had a limited amount of stomach capacity. In their case, they would be full after one and a half cooking cups of food. So this was somebody who was quite large and that amount would fill them up and everything was going great. But then he had a fall. He was also a veteran. So he had PTSD And, like, when he had the fall, like, just a wave of just, like, depression hit him. He's just, like, didn't really care about food. And he, during that time frame, gained 10 kilos in about six or seven weeks or something like that. And, like, mathematically, he had to be eating over 3,000 calories during that time frame. And I look back at that and, like, like, like judgment-free, like, quite literally just being, like, I wonder how he did that. And when I did ask him, he was, like, yeah, it was just, like, grazing across the day. (laughs) Yeah. I had certain snacks in his plan. I had like muesli bars in there. I had fruit. He only really liked bananas. So he was having bananas. Up and go energize was in there. So like up and goes. Um, Yogurts was in there. And he's like, yeah, I was having like three yogurts, three bananas, (laughs) three up and goes, like two or three muesli bars. And the reason why I, I talk, about that example because it doesn't really paint me in a good light as a dietitian because it was, it was a client who struggled and eventually things, like, got back on track after that. It was just a phase. Um, but I, I like to share that story because it's kind of like this man had a very limited capacity to eat food and he was able to get over 3,000 calories in. What can everyone else do?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good way to kind of, yeah, think about it in this context.
1: Yeah, like, well, he wasn't even trying to do that. He just happened to, like... Yeah, anyway, he was also sitting at home all day as well. But like, anyway, I like to use that example of being like, if you graze across the day, it's easier to get more food in. Another way that makes it easier to get more food in is liquid calories. It's easier to drink than it is to eat. You can probably finish a meal and wash it down with fluid as well. Using bariatric surgery, once again, as an example, a lot of people who do regain weight post-bariatric surgery are having liquid calories because it doesn't fill up their stomach as much. It is a way that they can get more calories in. Once again, for somebody without bariatric surgery, it's still an easier way to get more calories in. Another one is just focusing on more energy-dense foods, so lower-volume foods that contain more calories. For example, nuts, seeds, avocado, nut butters. Like everyone talks about, like peanut butter and like how many calories you can get get from that. You get so
0: many calories from peanut butter.
1: Hundred percent and. On that topic, you can look at it in terms of just calories, in terms of it doesn't have to be quote-unquote healthy food. Like those examples I just used there are really nutrient-dense. But this is something to consider being like, if you're trying to stick to quote-unquote clean foods and you have really high calorie requirements, it could be hard to reach those requirements. So sometimes it could make sense to include more processed foods or anything like that like if you really want to stick to more nutrient-rich foods go for those nuts seeds avocado peanut butter all those kind of things but you could be a little bit more flexible to get that food in and then the last piece of advice i have is making sure that you don't overdo it with fiber like you don't end up with super high fiber because that would be really feeling maybe some gi distress yeah those would be the things i'd be looking at the next question we've got is how can we increase our metabolism? So that's a common question we get.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. it's like Everyone wants to increase their metabolism, find ways to be able to eat more food whilst maintaining or even losing weight. Um, but I guess we have a pretty dire answer for this in that really the only ways we can increase our metabolism to a significant amount would be, A, eating more calories. So, We have done episodes on metabolic adaptation, but it really goes back to this. So if you eat more calories, your metabolism will adjust up to not meet that, but it's going to come up a little bit. Um, Vice versa, if you're in a calorie deficit or if you're eating less calories, it's going to adapt down. So your metabolism isn't this stagnant thing. It is going to adjust to the calorie availability. So if you want to increase your metabolism, a good way is to simply increase your food intake. Whether or not that aligns with your goals and and what you want to get out of it, maybe not, Um, but it is one way to do it. Uh, Secondary to that, you could just gain weight i mean whether it's fat or muscle gaining weight and being heavier it's going to increase your metabolism so getting bigger could be one um, people talk a lot about changing their body composition in regards to increasing muscle mass and reducing body fat and having that kind of body composition burning more calories so increasing their metabolism when you kind of crunch the numbers on this, cause we've done this before yeah. in the past, like if you were at exactly the same weight, but you had a slightly different body composition, muscle to body fat ratio wise, it doesn't make a huge difference to your metabolism. It's not like you're going to be eating an extra 500 calories at maintenance or anything like that, unless it was like a crazy significant change in body composition.
1: Yeah. yeah. And like putting numbers on that, cause I think we probably have talked about it on the podcast, but I still want to yeah. do it anyway. Like, Every kilo of muscle seems to burn about 12 to 13 calories just at rest, just existing, 12 to 13 calories. Every kilo of fat burns about four calories. That's a huge difference. That's three times the difference. But as you said, even a significant transformation. So you stay the same weight, you gain 10 kilos of muscle and you lose 10 kilos of fat, which is a very impressive transformation. That's 80 calories difference based on that mathematics. I, I obviously do think it is more in practice because that's just your metabolic, rate. Yes. What if you burn more calories when you exercise or just in your general everyday movement and stuff like that because you got more muscle, less fat, all those kind of things? It probably carries over slightly more calories.
0: Yeah, especially if you're like really active generally. Yeah,
1: there's not as big as you'd think. And I I used to be one of the big proponents for like, yeah, just build more muscle because I was like, I was looking at like what bodybuilders were saying they were eating and stuff like that and like heaps of people were struggling to get enough food in to maintain their body weight and stuff like that. Um, but there's a lot more factors that go into that as well.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. So, I mean, just like gaining weight, like if you just gained 10 kilos and it was a mix of fat and muscle, you'd pretty significantly increase your metabolism, but body composition changes, maybe a little less so. Um, another thing that kind of fits into this would be talking about the thermic effect of food. So it's, diff- it's, it's a bit different to your basal metabolic rate, which is really what we're talking about when we talk about metabolism, but there are a lot of people that kind of lump this together as well. So generally, if you're, well, A, eating more calories, you're going to be burning more calories digesting that food. Um, A higher protein diet means that you're burning more calories from your thermic effect of food. And even having more whole foods over processed foods takes more calories to digest. Look, the thermic effect of food doesn't usually make up a whole heap of your total daily energy expenditure. So it's not one I like, I'm not going to tell someone to eat a high protein diet for that alone. Um, but you know, it is something that slightly increases the amount of calories you're burning. Um, so those would be the main three things I talk about in regards to, yeah, these things can increase your, your metabolism or your total daily energy expenditure in that way. Um, things that are less so, um, (laughs) would be things like, uh, caffeine and fat burners so they can increase your metabolic rate a little bit and um, your fat oxidation but when we're talking about this from a weight loss perspective it's just not a really significant change so they're not going to be hope they're not going to be very useful for you
1: yeah i typically call them a one to three percent improve or increase in total daily energy expenditure um I was speaking with Tyler about this because he did a deep dive on it because he's going to do an Instagram post on it. And he was saying that if you do look at the studies, like sometimes there's a 20% increase in metabolism for a couple of hours. Yeah. And because we're burning calories 24-7, like that's how it averages out. So it does look significant on a very short time frame, but like it just like doesn't really matter over the long term. And I like caffeine, but like often like to get this effect, you need a decent amount of caffeine and – That probably outweighs, like, it's probably a bigger variable than the improvement in total energy expenditure. Like, it's probably not a fair trade-off. Like, I'd rather just have the amount of caffeine I want to have than have and eat maybe 1% to 3% less in terms of calories than use something specifically for this purpose, particularly if it is taken at a time that would affect your sleep or anything like that too.
0: Yeah, 100%. So next question is, how accurate are Apple Watches for tracking calories burned?
1: So I want to try and keep this one brief. I I spent heaps of time looking into this because I was making an Instagram post about this as well. But the answer is that surprisingly accurate but there also is a bit of margin for error and you definitely shouldn't take it like for, like take it as 100% accurate. So what I mean by that like when I say surprisingly accurate is cuz like when I was looking at research like a few years ago it's just like ah oh, this isn't even worth <laughs> like paying attention to it it probably does more harm than good like paying attention to it but like devices that use like multiple ways of tracking your energy expenditure like if they measure your heart rate and they measure heat And then they also measure your movement. Um, And Apple Watches do actually use multiple things. They can get kind of close and they're better at some forms of exercise than other forms. But there was one study in particular that stands out to me where they measured four devices. So Apple Watches, Fitbits, Charge HR, and a Samsung one. And on, oh sorry, Fitbit, Charge HR, Samsung one, and then one called My Alpha. And they got 23 people to exercise for an hour. And their percentage of error in terms of under-reporting energy expenditure on average was nine to forty-three, and I'm going to go nine to forty-three percent. I'm going to go into more detail on that, but like just like personal experiences, have you ever had a client who's just like, yeah, I been one thousand four hundred calories in a training session
0: all the time? Yeah, all the time.
1: And like some some of the numbers, like some people will report are like just ridiculous, like they're just yeah. like out of this world. Um, and I often do think. In, in some cases, it's like, let's just ignore that number. Like, let's just not even think about it because it, it shouldn't be dictating your nutrition strategy. Like, for example, if you're aiming for a calorie deficit and you're not losing weight, we know factually you're not in a calorie deficit if that goes on for long enough. It doesn't matter what the watch is saying you're burning or anything like that. And that's where I come back with the underreporting thing of like 9 to 43%. Like 43% underreporting is pretty huge. Um, and anecdotally, some of the things some people say, I'm like, well, in some rare cases, it seems to be even more than that. Like this study only had 23 subjects, so it wasn't like. Was wasn't it huge. It's not really like summarizing everything that's ever happened. But more recently, there was a 2020 systematic review that covered 60 studies, so it's a decent amount of studies. And they were just measuring, not Apple Watches specifically, but activity trackers on average. And they were trying to figure out how well activity trackers do. And the most accurate device they had was something called the Sensewear Armband Mini. But even its error report and studies range by underestimating as much as 21.27% to overestimating by as much as almost 15%. So it has like a 30% range of error. And that was the most accurate one they found. So like, I view them as like kind of good, probably better than you'd expect. But it's also not like, gold standard information that should sway your decisions. It's more of something that, like, it's maybe useful information to see how many calories you burn in one session in relation to other training sessions, but it probably shouldn't – you shouldn't be, like, trying to eat the amount of calories you've burned, for example. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think sometimes it does add confusion, especially to – to athletes, yeah. where they're like, oh, I, I feel like I should be eating more than this, but where like, they're maintaining their weight, they're recovering really well, but yeah. because of what's coming up on their watch, and that's overestimating how many calories they're burning, I think it just yeah, it adds a bit of confusion to the situation, although I think they can be good in circumstances where you're kind of comparing days to days, like in terms yeah. of how active you are, and maybe different training days, and managing your nutrition around that, but yeah, the numbers themselves.
1: Yeah, Maybe exactly. not so much. Yeah, like, th- that's the thing. You shouldn't be getting confused about that. Like, that's what I was saying. Like, it's like, if you're maintaining, yeah. well, then you're at maintenance. Costs. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, but I do agree. Like, th- there is some use there. Um, as a question for you, are there vegan collagen supplements and are these effective?
0: Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, there are no collagen supplements that are vegan that are trying to replicate what collagen is. So there are supplements on the market that do contain ingredients that boost collagen synthesis in the body, or at least claim to do so, um, that are vegan. How effective these are, I'd say probably not very at this point. I've not looked into every single ingredient in every collagen booster supplement, but based on what we know about collagen, I'd say they're probably not up to scratch just yet at least. Uh, So the one context that we know collagen supplementation might be helpful, so just talking about regular collagen, is uh, in soft tissue injury. So it might be useful in that circumstance in repairing things like ligaments and tendons. If we were to have a vegan version of that, what we'd really be looking for is something that's replicating that amino acid profile, that collagen has because it's a very specific amino acid profile that we know is pretty effective for for boosting uh that kind of synthesis in ligaments and tendons so there's nothing on the market yet, but I'm surprised that no one has done anything. That no yeah. one has replicated collagen in a vegan way, because again, we've talked about this before. But we could just take all those individual amino acids and put it in the right ratio and and make somewhat of a vegan yeah. collagen supplement.
1: Like that's what's surprising, because there is a lot that like are designed to like replicate the texture and like have. Yeah, similar, those are the weirdest ones because yeah.
0: they don't even do anything other than just the texture of yeah. collagen,
1: yeah. Yeah, and like they do have ingredients, like a lot will have vitamins in they will have those other things, but they're all relatively low protein and they yeah. don't have the amino acid. So yeah, it is an interesting space, but yeah. yeah. Um, the next one is, is there any actual evidence that diet can help with depression slash anxiety?
0: You can probably get started on this one because I, I know you know way more about the SMILES trial yeah. than I do. And I think that's probably where this discussion is going to go.
1: Yeah, so... Um, so the short answer is yes, (laughs) there is, there is, there is evidence. Um, I, I talk about smiles trial because up until 2017, there were no randomized control trials in nutrition and depression before that. We still had evidence. It just wasn't the like controlled, like it wasn't randomized control trials. It wasn't that like gold standard style approach. We had a lot of observational evidence. We just didn't have like, these people have depression and anxiety. We did this nutrition intervention and now they no longer have it. We didn't have that before. We just had stuff being like, these people have better quote-unquote diets and they're less likely to have depression. And that one of the issues there, obviously, is the chicken or the egg situation. Like, do people with better diets, are they just less likely to develop depression anxiety or is it like as you develop depression and anxiety does your diet start to change because you don't feel like looking after your nutrition as much and stuff like that yeah um the really exciting thing with the small trial so that was 2017 and there has been studied since that but i always point to this one because it's like the first one that really like moved the needle in this kind of discussion um the really good thing there was they got people and they put them on a modified mediterranean diet and they did it for 12 weeks and they had dietitian input and stuff like that they had a placebo group where they got them to just instead because like the dietitian is a variable what if speaking to somebody for an hour seven times throughout 12 weeks changes your mood in some way shape or form so they got a control group to do a similar type activity where they'd see somebody once a week or once seven times throughout a 12-week process and just talk shit basically <laughs> like just talk about nothing just
0: talk about life yeah, yeah
1: basically um and if they if that was awkward they got them to play board games and stuff like that so they were just like yeah, doing right. something um which i think is cool because the people in that group also had some small improvements too so it's like the control group is actually necessary because we can't just pin this down just to diet but regardless they, they followed a modified mediterranean diet and 12 weeks later 32 percent were in remission based on the depression scores and most of them had anxiety to start off with and 20% of the people with anxiety went into remission. Um, That really stands out, obviously, because it's like, that's a pretty huge impact. But the number that stands out to me even more is every single person who finished the trial had an improvement in their depression score. Yeah. And as somebody who spent a lot of time working with veterans with PTSD and stuff like that, like, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to be out here being like, yeah, this is going to solve, <laughs> 100%. this is going to solve everything. Like it's obviously so, so, so much more complex, but the fact that every single person showed some level of improvement is enough for me to be like, well, this is worth exploring. And that's just one approach. Like that was just the first study that happened to be done on it. Like that's just scratching the surface. So like the short answer is yes, there is evidence that diet can help with depression and anxiety. And there's probably heaps of options.
0: It's going to be interesting to see where the research in that space goes. So hopefully they do a little bit more into it.
1: Yeah. Cause it's even like mechanisms, like they were talking about like the gut brain access or inflammation in the brain and like there's yeah. heaps of other things that go into it. And then like when I've spoken to people who have depression, like a lot of them talk about it being like, well, what if it was just like taking control of their diet and like feeling like they were empowered by it or like there's so many variables that go into it. So it is an interesting space.
0: Next question we have is, does the increased water weight from creatine go away after loading? So, I mean, we always talk about this and that people overthink this way too much. So you are not going to gain a ton of water weight usually in that loading phase of creatine. Like, Typically in practice, I see about half a a kilo to a kilo max for most people. Um, So it's not going to be a whole lot and it is all going to be intramuscular. So I always say to my clients, like, it might might make you look a bit more jacked. What's wrong with that? Like, there's never anything wrong with looking a bit more muscular. Um, But, you know looking at the research at, you know, does this actually continue to stay around or does it dissipate over time? So we do have a review that came out in 2021 called Common Questions and Misconceptions About Creatine Supplementation. Um, And they summarise a lot of key points around like using creatine and then the water weight that that occurs. um, And they said that even though it occurred initially, it does seem to go back to baseline over time. So likely this water retention that you see initially, whether it's in the week of the fast loading protocol or like the month of the slow loading protocol, it probably does dissipate over the the months that you you take it. Um, So it's not even going to be a long term concern for most people, which I think is relevant when we're thinking about weight making athletes at least.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that study was actually the one that was, like, that came out in 2021. And before that, I had never thought about it hard. I just assumed it just, like, stayed around until you stopped using creatine. Yeah, I thought the same. Yeah, but and it was just, like, written, like, offhand, just like, no, it probably doesn't. Um, and it makes sense just due to water homeostasis and everything like that. One other caveat of that is, like, it's so much simpler and I wish, like, i toss up whether I should just say this and leave it there, but, like, the, the water weight's probably not all intramuscular, it's either 50-50 mm-hmm. intramuscular, extramuscular or, or extracellular or like a pretty split in favour of being intramuscular. Sure. So like I like to say it's mostly intramuscular, but like the hard thing about that is it, it, it feeds into people thinking, oh, this is going to make me look puffy. This is going to be like – yeah. yeah. And we know like – and that was one of the other things that was addressed in there as well being like, well, it doesn't make people <laughs> – look any different. You're
0: not going to notice Yeah, the you're difference. not
1: going to notice the difference. And I do think, as you said, it makes people look more jacked.
0: Yeah. If, and if that's the thing you're going to get from it, I think that's great.
1: Yeah, it's a nice yeah. bonus.
0: So one of our last questions, do you need to do anything differently for weight loss if you have insulin resistance?
1: So not really. This is something I've talked about for days. Like it's a really complex thing. Um, a lot of people hypothesize that low carb diets would be better, but jumping to the chase, like that's not what the research shows. Like the research, there was one study I read in 2016, 2017. I don't know what date the study was published, but that was when I read it that showed there was a difference. I remember I made a post on Facebook about it being like, well, maybe lower carbohydrate diets are superior. And then every single study outside of that that I'm aware of basically just shows no difference. We can tell in type 2 diabetes where insulin resistance is most prevalent that people lose fat just as well on a lower carb or a lower fat style diet. Um, So it's quite clear and we see long-term outcomes as well in terms of health outcomes being like if people do lose body fat with either approach, they still become more sensitive to insulin and they can better tolerate glucose and everything like that. So it's really useful to know. Um, The mechanism doesn't even really necessarily make sense to me as well in terms of the concept that a lot of people think about is because people are insulin resistant, they need more insulin. They have more insulin in their body and that's why people talk about it being like, oh, you're going to store more body fat if you have more carbs or whatever. But the mechanism, my way of thinking about it is that insulin is used to take glucose out of the blood so it can be stored as glycogen or body fat or be utilized for other functions. If you're resistant to insulin, it's not as good at doing that job anymore.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's like almost the opposite from a mechanistic yeah, point of view. Yeah, it's <laughs>
1: almost the opposite. And this yeah. is what we see in type 1 diabetes where they don't have insulin, like where insulin is not able to take the glucose out because they're not producing the insulin, they lose weight because their blood glucose levels are going up. Same kind of thing here. Like, It's it's a different explanation, but it's another way of thinking about it being like glucose is harder to get out of the blood to be stored as body fat if you're insulin re- resistant. Um, either way, though, mechanisms like I, I prefer to think about outcomes and the outcomes show that it doesn't really matter body fat is still made up of calories and at the end of the day whether those calories are coming from carbs or fats or whatever like it still has to come from somewhere which is why this all works out and then the last thing that i always like to point out like just because almost everybody who talks about insulin resistance will kind of ignore this point and so i want to touch on it is that protein also raises insulin yes almost yeah. everybody who talks about insulin acts as if carbs is the only thing that raises it. And this is a kind of way to like see through a message a lot of people are trying to pitch. If they always talk about insulin, but they never mention protein and they're just trying to, it's an oversimplification if they're always trying to pin it on carbs. The last question, and this is obviously way more up your alley than mine, is I have just gone vegan. What are the most important supplements and vitamins I should be aware of?
0: Yeah, we'll keep this short. So I'm going to list them out, the usual ones I go over with all of my vegan clients. Um, the first, from a supplement perspective, is B12. So I recommend that across the board to pretty much anyone that's reducing, like actively reducing animal products, but particularly vegan, So you can't really get B12 from plant-based foods. It is in some fortified foods, but it's not a reliable source. So I always say supplement with B12, you won't regret it. Um, I don't have any other supplement recommendations that I have again across the board. Uh, Common ones are like omega-3 so like EPA and DHA from microalgae particularly in my athletes but again not necessary for everyone. Um, Vitamin D is another one that tends to be lower in, in vegans due to lack of animal products so we may supplement with that. But generally, just talking about other vitamins and minerals to be aware of, uh, generally iron and zinc, because our requirements are higher uh, on a plant-based diet than an animal-based diet. So there's something to be aware of. Um, And other things like calcium, because you're not going to be eating dairy anymore. And a few other things like iodine and selenium that would also usually be rich in animal products. Um, So that's kind of my short list of things to at least be aware of when going vegan.
1: Perfect. We'll wrap it up there. Well, this has been episode 48 and I really like Q&A ones because it's easy content. We don't have to come up with ideas. You guys come up with it. So I really appreciate that. But apart from that, thank you to everybody who's listening. As always, if you can please leave a rating and review if you have access to and you have not already done so, that would be massively appreciated. Thank you.